You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 160 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Mike Decapite, as we talk about his new book, Jacket Weather. It was a balmy summer day in Alameda, California, in early 2001. This was before we had to go through TSA at checkpoints at the airport. In fact, you can go to an airport bar just to go and get overpriced drinks. It was early 2001 and I walked into the Alameda County Library. I love libraries. They mean everything to me. Books mean everything to me. And sometimes, out of pure delusion, I would look at the books on the shelf that would be near my last name. At the time I thought that one day I might have a book published that could end up in a library. Usually it'd be filed right next to Lawrence Durrell. And I read Durrell's work only because it would be next to where my future book would be stacked in the shelf at the library. And sometimes I just glided my eyeballs a little further around the section to the left and to the right. Who else would I be in the company of on this shelf? In 2001, I found a book called Through the Windshield by Mike Decapite. I read the first few pages and decided to check it out. After I got home, I devoured the book. It was amazeballs, as the kids would say. I even sent a fan letter to the author who lived in San Francisco at the time. And now, 20 years later, Mike Decapite makes his second appearance on Drinks with Tony. And not only do we share self-shelf space at libraries across the United States, we also share the same publisher, Soft Skull Press. Hi, I'm Mike Decapite, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Mike Decapite. His new book is called Jacket Weather. It's out now on Soft Skull Press. Mike, how are you? Hey, Tony. I'm so excited. Okay, I'm so excited. Now, you came on Drinks with Tony in studio. Do you remember that about 12 years ago? When you were still in San Francisco. Yeah, that was fun. In the mission somewhere. Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was when we were at the, uh, the cafe. So it was a half radio station, half cafe, if I remember right. Was that the state that was at the studio we were at? Yeah, but it wasn't opened. We were in a back room somewhere. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was us in the dark, dank back room. And I, <laughs> and I was so excited. Oh, so, so to, to give the whole story, I found your book through the windshield around right around when it came published, like 2000, 2001, right? Came out in 98, 98. Um, at, the, at the very end of 98 though. So, okay. And then I found it and I, and I loved it so much. I sent you a fan letter and that's how we got in contact when you were doing cherry bleeds. Right. Exactly. That, that's aging me a lot. And, and, um, and then now, and now jacket weather comes out and as of right now, in case anything, nothing will probably change. It's my favorite novel of this year. Oh, isn't that great? Thank you. 
It's just, it, it, it's one of those, uh, you know, I, it's one of those books where as a writer, I go, oh, or even just as a reader, uh, it's just something feels important about it. And I think it's just, it's just you just have a, I, I don't know. I feel like you just did it right, man. That's all, that's all <laughs> I got to say. Well, you know, sometimes it falls in your lap. You know, sometimes, you you know, the, you, you don't always have the right combination of what you want to write about and how you want to write it. Um, and and for what you want to write about to to be what you think people want to read about. You know, sometimes you want to write about what you want to write about, but that doesn't mean everybody's going to be interested. This is a love story. So I figured, like, if I was ever going to have anything picked up by a by a commercial publisher, this was, I felt like this was my shot. Oh, that's cool. You know, because I, I feel, I, I love that it's coming out on soft skull and I feel, I feel like that tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel the, I feel like the way you write, uh, it's, it's, it's all like, so, soulful, soulful. And there's a, um, there, there's almost, I don't know. There's, there's just such a great rhythm to it that I feel like larger publishers would be scared to put out because they wouldn't know exactly what to do with it. And this is one of those books where, you know what, mate? Yeah. You don't know exactly what to do with it, but it's, it grabs your heart, which is what I love about through the windshield as well. So. I, I agree. Um, <clears throat> and I, and I think that even if a, if a larger publisher had been interested in it, the book might not have been the same by the time they were done with it. Um, you know, I, uh, I I really like the first time I talked to my editor Yuka Yuka Igarashi. Um, I had sent her the book in August of 2019, and uh, Chris Krauss recommended that I send it to her. Chris Krauss read the book and suggested that I send it to Yuka, which I did, and uh, I didn't hear anything for a long time. Like to me, it was a long time. Probably to her, it wasn't a long time, but it was you know, November, by which time I thought, oh, that's a dead issue. I'm not going to hear from her now, you know. Um, and then she wrote and said that she felt like she was the target audience for this book. But she still needed to talk. She had been trying to decide ever since August. She said she read it immediately when she got it, but it had taken her that long to try and figure out whether or how they would be able to publish it. So it wasn't a done deal even then. And uh, the first time I, so we arranged to talk and, uh, and uh, so I left work early so that I could, because I had to take my friend Jane to Costco after work. So I left work early. Costco in the Bronx or, or is that? This is, this is Costco in Long Island City. Long Island, all right. Uh, Queens. <laughs> um, so anyway, I went downtown. I went to the parking garage where I parked my car. And I'm sitting up on the roof of this garage in the car. Yuka calls. And we talk for so long that now I got to start the car and go get Jane, take her to Costco. So I turn on the engine and she says, oh, are you driving somewhere? I said, yeah, I got it. I'm taking my friend Jane to Costco. She said, oh, I love Jane. And Jane's a character in the book. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, right away I knew that this was, <laughs> you know, that she was, 
that this was going to work out. But even then, even, you know, so we were supposed to talk like a week after that. And even then it was like another several months before I heard from her that we were going to, that she was going to be able to, she had permission to do this. So, um, uh, you know, even, even when an editor loves it, you never know what's going to happen. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Was so is now we're now, when you said Jane, are these characters, how real are these characters? Is They're they real. Totally real. Everything's real. Everything's real. I mean, yeah. I, it's somebody asked me the other day, uh, what separates this from a memoir, but I never thought of this as a memoir. I only ever thought of this as a novel. I only ever think in terms of a novel. Um, I'm sure it was very similar to you, right? For you, when you write writing Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, right? You probably never thought of that as a memoir, right? It, you um, probably always thought of it as a novel. I mean, the thing sort of dictates its own, um, dictates its form, right? Yeah, I I felt that um, in order for me to do the story justice, it had to be a novel, and it would be it would it would have more truth if it was a novel. If it was if it was a memoir, there's um, there's an element of heaviness to it that's attached to it where I think we can lose our um, we we can lose the emotional truth when we're we're moving to we're steering too hard into this happened and then this happened type of thing yes so that's a good point because everything happened everything that's in this book happened but of course it's not everything that happened right yeah i mean what's in there is what i wanted in there to serve what i was trying to say what i what i'm trying to get across right in this book so um Everything happened, but things don't happen in the order that they're happening in the book. The book is nonlinear, basically. Um, so I, I just think of it as a novel, but using found materials, like you would use found materials in a collage. Nobody would object if you put a real newspaper in a collage. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, this collage has a has a has a memoir sense to me and everyone around (laughs) (laughs) is that newspaper a real date (laughs) right so then i get so do we get to talk about that you found love again sure we could talk about whatever you want isn't that why i just i'm so i i I knew I knew there was a little bit of parallel. Well, I knew I knew a little bit about the parallels to the story because I mean, we we had coffee. I think um, when you were at where was it at? Fortunatos in Brooklyn. Fortunatos in Brooklyn, pre-COVID. When I was when I was ready to start being East Coast a lot, and I was right. like, I'll right, see right. You, I'll see you again, Mike. I'll see you. I'll see you <laughs> in about a month and a half, and then the whole world shuts down. <laughs> right. But um, but but what a what what the your the story of your uh, love life at this moment I found it utter, utterly beautiful. I think I, I, as we were talking, I don't remember all the details because I think we were going over both of our love lives, right? right. <laughs> but but it, but it was just it, it was gorgeous. And then I did I I don't know if um 
I didn't know how much, you know, when going into jacket weather, I didn't know how much was spot on or how much was just, Oh, this was, this is the emotional lifting of it. But how great is that? How great is love for you? I mean, I it's work, but how great is it? Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Sorry, sorry, I threw you off there. Well, um, I was just thinking about, you know, before this, I wrote a, I published a chapbook called Creamsicle Blue, Mm -hmm. which is in a way the opposite of this. In fact, I had originally intended this for that, for Creamsicle Blue to be the opening section of Jacket Weather. Anyway, Creamsicle Blue is about me on my own, finally, on my own without any kind of hassles. And just the, you know, there's a certain kind of, um, uh, um, there's a certain kind of elation that you can only feel when you're alone in your life. After you know? after being in a relationship. and so. Or just alone. Just, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. a certain kind of, uh, there's a certain thing that, that only comes to you when you're alone. Yeah. Um, and so it's a little bit of a trade-off, right? Um, mm-hmm. When you when you become involved with somebody, um, it's a worthwhile trade-off. Um, at least in this case, it is. Uh, but I had written this book, this little chapbook, Creamsicle Blue, um, which is almost like a novel in itself, except it's like a novel in thirty pages. Um, about uh, just the kind of uh, it was kind of a manifesto i think i mentioned it in jacket weather so it was like a manifesto about the the importance of staying single and being on your own and uh doing what you had to do and um and at the same time at that point i didn't feel like i had really uh anything to lose i mean i didn't have i didn't feel like i had anything to lose and so uh I wasn't worried about mortality or any, anything like that, you know? Uh, and immediately when I met June, I had something to lose. And, um, you know, that's the trade-off, you know, you have something to lose and then you start worrying about the future. You start dreading that, you know, that you're going to get sick. All of a sudden it didn't seem like there was enough time left, you know, even though we were only around, I can't tell you how old she is because I'm sworn to secrecy on that score, but I was nearly 50 when we met. Um, so all of a sudden I felt like even if we lived another 30, 40 years, there wasn't going to be enough time for us. Yeah. So much truth to that. I mean, I, you know, I, I had been writing this creamsicle blue piece for uh, trying to get it right for a long time. Then I met her and I felt like, I better finish this up now because I'm not going to, I'm not going to have anything further to say on this subject of being single. You know, I got to finish my manifesto now and then, um, you know, then it's time to move on into this new life. And then, and when you're writing, you, uh, I mean, as, as, uh, uh, I I'm laughing at myself for, uh, for, 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 for being, for being a fan and like, um, and wanting to, you know, just like, Oh yeah. Just like, all I'm, I'm getting, I'm trying to be less, uh, what do you call it? Uh, <laughs> trying to calm get a grip down on yourself. Tom. Yes, exactly. Get a grip on myself. <laughs> um, the, when, when you write, are, are you really, I mean, it seems like you're really 
tapping into what's happening at the moment in your life. Is that true? Or is there, is it kind of like you write after the, after a while, after the time? No, I, I really feel like in this book, one of the things that happened that I feel like was an influence on this book is that I quit smoking shortly after I got together with June. And how long so, have you been, how long have you been smoking for? How long had I been smoking? Mm -hmm. Probably since my early 20s. I still wow. was a late bloomer with smoking, but you know, it had been at that point, it had been uh, you know, 25 years, something like that. And why and did you quit smoking because of uh June? Or was it kind of just coincided that it was time? Well, I'd always been trying to quit smoking. I've been trying to quit smoking for a long time and I'd made my attempts and quit for a month or quit for three months or whatever, but I could never quite, you know, escape its gravity. And then um, when I got together with June, I sort of, I just felt like if I'm asking this woman to have a future with me, I have to, I have to be able to offer her a future, right? I can't, this not, in good faith, I can't keep smoking if I'm, you know, talking about the future with her. Um, you have so to take I, care yeah. of yourself because if, right. if, if you're in love with someone and you want to get, and, and you want a relationship, all of a sudden that also brings responsibility. And then exactly. I feel like we have to kind of better ourselves in order to be better in the relationship. Absolutely. You have to kind of shed your old self and be the best version of yourself, you know, that you can. I always think of that, that, there's a hold steady line where he says, guys, it's like, we're not even trying. <laughs> you know, <that's> not... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, so I quit smoking, which meant that I was going to have to radically change what my approach to writing, because it was an intimate part of my writing process you know you write a paragraph or you write a sentence and then you reward yourself with a cigarette or if you get into any kind of a jam or if you feel like anything is a little bit scary that you don't if there's a problem that you don't know how to solve i'm not talking about big problems i'm just talking about what's the right word in this sentence right yeah you know um because you know everything with writing is about trying to overcome this um you know it's, it's it's about trying to make it easy and uh and you do you use whatever you can in order to make it easy anyway so it was a big part of my process and i wasn't going to be able to sit at, right away i knew that i wasn't going to be able to just sit down at the table and and write for you know four hours like like before because it's just you know, it's just me and the typewriter, you know, I'm not, I don't have any help. So, uh, so I just started writing in short spurts, wherever I was, I decided I'm not going to have any kind of any, I'm not going to have to cross any threshold. You know, I don't need to set up my desk just so and make sure that the music is right and make sure I have my ashtray and my cigarettes and my lighter and, you know, and then something like a coffee or, a, you know, something to drink with the with the cigarette. You know, it's a whole thing. Right. So I just put all of that away. Now it's just me. And I just decided I'm not going to make any kind of a big deal out of this. I don't want to feel like I have to cross a threshold in order to be able to write. I just want to sit down and write wherever I am. It doesn't have to be at the table. 
Uh, it could be on the subway. So I sort of thought of this book as kind of like plain air writing, you know, the way plain air painters paint, took their canvases outside and painted what they saw outside. And, and I, so this is almost everything in this book was written while it was happening or shortly after it happened. It's kind of all, all on the fly. If you didn't quit smoking, would the book be a completely different format? Um, that's the existen that existential question. Know. I'm asking. I'm essentially asking: Is there God? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, it was time to quit smoking anyway. Um, yeah. Plus, June and I live in a studio, so I wouldn't have. I, at that point, obviously, when I met her, I had my own place, but I, I couldn't just sit here and smoke cigarettes all day now with both of us in this studio. Yeah, um, I, I think the book would have been similar in format, though, because I'm always uh, it's the form that I've always been developing for myself or refining for myself from I, everything I've written is is similar to this form. It, this might be a, a refinement of it, but, you know, everything I've written alternates uh, little bits of narrative, pieces of dialogue, um, observations about the weather. That's something that goes back to the earliest things I wrote. The first thing I ever wrote when I was about 18, somebody gave, told me, if you want to be a writer, you should keep a journal. But um, I decided that I was going to keep a journal, but I was going to write it on the type. I was going to type this journal and think of it as a book, like I was writing a book in real time. And, uh, and it would be a novel when I was finished with it. And you don't have something to report every day. Some days you just want to talk about the clouds. Um, so that became the template for everything I've written since. Just very naturally. It wasn't, uh, I didn't sit down and formulate that. Just kind of, uh, it's my form. And I, I love, I love the, um, the dialogue at the gym. <laughs> just it, it, it's, it just it, it all it all it's it, it's something that it's something that like if, you know if uh if like you know teaching writing or you know so-called formula it, the first thing would be why why are we at the gym why, why what's the purpose of this how is this moving forward and the and it's just like oh it, the book wouldn't be the same if we didn't go to the gym and have these dialogues Right. Those questions, those are valid questions if you're teaching writing. Yeah. But those questions all sort of are irrelevant if you're if you look at the book instead of as a novel or whatever your idea of a novel is and look at it instead as a fabric or a mosaic, then those conversations with people at the gym, these same characters who pop up for no particular reason, um, become design elements. And you know what I mean? So, yeah. So um, I guess so you have guys talking about pasta over here and then right. there's something about the way the light looks in the morning and then there's me in June and then you go back to another guy at the gym or what, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah. I don't think of it in, 
I, don't, I have no facility for plot and I really have no interest in a plot. I mean, I noticed that even when I watch something with a plot, it makes me nervous. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, um, so I dispense with that. Yeah. Which but was, I, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, no, I, but I, but I do care about the real, uh, the relationship of Mike and June though. Right. There's an arc. Yeah. There's, there's an arc, but it's not a plot like a Rube Goldberg machine where one thing falls and triggers another thing that goes through a basket and sets something else yeah. on fire. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an arc. It's a design. Yeah. I think of it as a visual thing, like a, like a, like a visual, like it's all on one plane in a way. Uh-huh. I like that. Rather than as a, uh, uh, a, a line that passes through time. It's a, it's, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to do both things at once, frankly. And, and that, and that makes sense. Cause that feels like that's why there's the immediacy to the book and the, I have to, I have to read this in like two sittings because there's it's yeah. I'm, anyway, I, I remember you talking about, Oh yeah. This book jacket weather. I'm, I'm you know, it's, it was, it was just, it's great. I wish we taped our conversation then because, because back then it was like, yeah, I got this. I'm really, you know, it's really good. It's, it's, I, it's it. It's, but I don't know where it's going, man. I'll send you a copy maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> I know it's a very strange feeling. They sent me a box of advanced copies the other day, and uh, it's it's just a very strange feeling when that thing is outside of you instead of inside of you, especially if it's something that you've been living inside for, I don't know, five or seven years, you know? Yeah. Now it has nothing to do with me. Now it's just over there between covers. Isn't that weird? I think people feel, well, and even I thought this was the case. You get a book come out and there's a parade down the street for you and everyone realizes that you're really a writer and, and, and it's just, no, there's a book over there and there's some stuff written in it. And it's, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, that's nice. And then it's almost like, like for me, it's like, I, I still don't know what to do about that. Right. You can't rest on it in any way. You, it's, it's hard even to really be proud of it because the person who did that is the, you know, is the person who did it yesterday or last year. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's not you, it doesn't stop you from, doesn't mean you don't have to write again. And right. when you have to write again, you start all over again. I mean, every time you sit down to write, it's like you never wrote before. I don't feel like, I mean, I've, I've learned things about writing, but I, I, don't start out with, I don't start out on something new with any assurance that I'm going to reel it in, you know, that I'm going to bring it in, that I'm going to get, that it's, that I'm going to be able to finish it or get it to work. So you when know? you start, when you started jacket weather and your relate and your relationship is, uh, I don't know how far along you were in your, in, in, in love and in your relationship, it was still pretty new. Pretty Wait, when new you, yeah. When you were writing it, did you did you act did you kind of see an end to it, or were you like, okay, this is kind of a cool thing, and I don't know how far it's going to go? I think I saw. I thought of it as a novella. I thought I'm just going to make this little novella. It'll be a hundred pages or 120 pages, and it'll be a very kind of light, 
little thing. I mean, it is still light, but it's twice as long as I expected it to be. I think what I did is I spent a few years just writing things down as they happen and taking notes with the idea that somehow all these notes and bits of conversation and you know shots of the weather were all gonna cohere into something on their own. And uh, you know, after a few years of that, I realized these are not gonna cohere. Where did you ever get that idea? <laughs> you have to put them into something, right? So I sat down and made it, put them into some sort of a first draft. And then after that, I wrote every day. You know, I worked on it every day. Um, but even, even then it was another few years. Yeah. And probably, uh, I think, I think the, this draft now that was published is the 10th draft of it. So, you know, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't ever, it was fun, but it wasn't easy. You know, it's like you look at something that you wrote and you think, that's amazing. I just sat down and wrote that. Even though you didn't sit down and write it, you just spent eight years working on it or however, you know what I mean? Oh, uh, all too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the, it's the breezy, I, it's the breezy writing. That's the hardest to write. It's the, it's, you know, if, if it's, if it's like Ulysses and, you know, or, or something where it's just like, Oh wait, there's this deep and dense. And that's not the, the hard stuff to write is when we forget, we're reading a novel and we're just in it and that, and it's right. just breezy. And it seems like, Oh, I could have written, I could have written this in, 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 you know, six hours as well. And th those are the hardest ones. Right. Yeah. I remember, uh, I don't know when this was, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe a little more. There was, it was whatever the 50th anniversary of uh, on the road. Mm. I don't remember when that book came out, maybe 1955 or, Right, right. Yeah, I think right around there. Was that when the scroll of the book was? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So they published that scroll yeah. edition. And at the New York Public Library, the main library on 42nd Street, they had a, an exhibit devoted to Kerouac. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole room filled with his false starts on that book. You know, everybody wow. knows that he sat down and wrote that book in six weeks or however, however, it wasn't even six weeks, it was a couple of weeks. However much, however, however little time, that's the legend, right? That everybody right. knows that he wrote this book in two weeks on this roll of butcher paper. But I didn't know until then that he started the, the book first. He, he tried to write it in the third person. He tried to write it in French, tried to write it about a black character. Um, there was a whole room devoted to these false starts. He just couldn't. It was only out of desperation that he finally sat down and let everything go and kind of let it rip and was able to do that. And, and yeah, cause I, I loved, I loved being able to look at the scroll cause it came to San Francisco when it was touring and I was right. all I wanted to do was dry hump it, but that would be a socially <laughs> unacceptable thing to do. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, you know, Oh yeah. He banged it out. The legend, he banged it out in however many weeks, but, you know, it's the, the how many journals did he write? How just how many notes did he get even before he got to the false starts? It's totally. it was in his consciousness for a long time in order to bang it out on that, you know, yeah. on the scroll. You, 
in fact, you might remember there was I re, there was an earlier exhibit devoted to Kerouac at the um, oh you know what's the museum in San Francisco the um, is it the Palace of Fine Arts is it not the Palace of Fine Arts uh, there's De Young there's MoMA there's I think um, it might have been at the De Young yeah. There was a there was an there was another exhibit devoted to Kerouac that was that there was a case filled with his little notebooks, and I was so moved by those, <clears throat> by those notebooks. You know, he was I missed that. Writing. I totally missed that. When was that? Well, it was bef- it was when I was living there. So yeah, um, early two thousands. Yeah, early two thousands. I can't believe I missed that. God, now, I, I, I just be, I just became disgusted with myself. I know you were telling a sweet story, but I became utterly disgusted with myself for not seeing. Oh, no, but now you now you now, now you made me question whether or not that was even in San Francisco. Oh, no, I know you're probably right. Um, I'm just <clears throat> um, that's just something that uh, I, I may, maybe maybe it was a very drunken few weeks I was having at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to look that up. I think there's a museum that's in Golden Gate Park, right? Oh, the Golden Gate Park one is not the, um, let's see. The one in Golden Gate Park is, oh, is it? Yeah, maybe it is the De Young. I can't remember. Anyway, he had had all of these little leather notebooks that he carried around. And it was very moving to see that he was- Oh, how sexy is that? Always, always writing. And at, also, um, at the uh, exhibit in, in New York, there were two rooms devoted to writing, sports writing, that he did as a kid. Did you ever see that stuff? No. Amazing. He was this lonely kid who came home every day after school. He invented a type of baseball game that he could play on a tabletop using like a folded up piece of paper. I don't know how he played the game with a marble or something like that. But he completely invented two uh, baseball leagues, every team, players on the teams, and he would have these teams play each other and then write about them. He did the same thing with the horses. He had a, a long board that he set up like a ramp and he would roll these different sized marbles down this board, right? And whichever one got there first was the winner representing this horse. And he would write about the horse and the race and he would write about the trainers and uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the owners and he wrote, and he wrote maybe a million words already by the time he was 16. Wow. Like a machine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and was it, wasn't he like a football dude too? He was on yeah. the football team and stuff. Yes. Yes. He, he was the guy that would have kicked my ass in high school. No, <laughs> no, his friend, his friends would have, his friends would have found me. <laughs> he would have held back and went, oh man, who am I hanging out with? <laughs> yeah. That's, so what is June, what does June think of all of this? Cause she, you know, she's, um, she's, she's part of the narrative and now the narrative's coming out there that, that there's gotta be some like, maybe, maybe, maybe it was a mistake there, Mike. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think she feels exposed a little bit. Um, and I don't think she was even thinking too much about that until somebody, I can't remember where this review was, but somebody referred to her as neurotic, like all New Yorkers. 
Oh no. In fact, June isn't neurotic really at all. Um, she's one of the least neurotic people I know, but people think that be about New Yorkers, especially Jewish New Yorkers, you know, because they've seen Woody Allen movies. Or, so they think everybody's, every New York Jew is, is neurotic. And, and, Mary, um, and Mary's their Korean stepdaughter. No, I'm kidding. Right. That's a bad <laughs> <laughs> so she, um, and, and this review quoted her, quoted her from the book, but that's also quoting her. And so I think that, sort of gave her a little pause like wow i'm really kind of exposed here and this person is judging me so i think she's a little nervous about that it's not about what i said about her but it's you know what what other people might say about her how they might might judge her in in print i suppose yeah because I, I feel like when when there's a book out there it's it's becoming part of the um the collective story of essentially of hum humanity, not to go too wacko on it, but it's we're, we're adding to the mythology. So now she's added to the mythology of sorts. Right. Right. She's part of that fabric now. When, when did you, uh, when did you let her read a copy of the book? Probably not until I'm not sure exactly, but probably not until the third draft, something like that, until until it was something that sort of hung together, you know, as a book and wasn't just a, a collection of notes, third or fourth draft, something like that, maybe even later, maybe the fifth draft. And uh, she didn't have any problem with it at all. Just it was just when she realized that people might be judging her in some way in, um, in reviews, because people do that now, right? Oh. I mean, my expectation is that a book should be judged on its merits as a piece of writing, not by the behavior of its characters, <laughs> right? Exactly. But it, people do that yeah. now. Yeah. You know, you can get yourself in hot water as a writer if your character is expressing a, a controversial view you know it's like you're saying it and yeah exactly and you're, and you're just like no this is this is actually things that happen in real life but i'm writing i'm working on these characters and this is what they do and sometimes you know that there we i um there, there's a there's a dark side to everybody so why 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 not go ahead and dive in um and see what happens you know on the page not in right. life you know, right. we, we can go kill an enemy on the page. We can't do it in real life. So, right. Right. But yeah, J poor June. She's going to, she's got more of that coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, I mean, you know, I, if, if people writing about the book, first of all, if I'm lucky enough for people to write about the book, to review the book, but if, it, you know, if they do and they just review it as a book, as a piece of writing, that's without judging it, without judging its characters by their behavior, then she'll be OK. Yeah. I bet that. But some of these writers want clickbait. How do we. Right. How do, yeah. How do we uh, how do we angle this? Yeah. I, yeah it's, I can't even read news anymore because I, I just I feel like it's trying to uh, I, I feel like the National Enquirer of the 1990s. I'd rather read that and go. There's more truth in here. And than there is I understand. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I have to make a choice every morning, you know, even though I. Um, 
you know, I get up and turn on the computer and I read maybe Heather Cox Richardson's column or start to every morning, but it's five o'clock in the morning. Do I really want to read about Mitch McConnell at five o'clock on the, you know, at dawn of a, of a new day? Do I really want to poison it by reading about, you know, politics? Uh, I don't know what the answer is, but um, anyway, I, I, it's always a choice whether whether or not to, you know, keep abreast of what's going on or to, uh, you know, to keep a clear head. <laughs> as clear as we can. Right. Yeah, it's, it's intrigued me, especially, you know, as I've had time to sit alone in pandemic, you know, the the idea of uh, politics kind of almost being like. I, you know, I never realized how much we have to talk about other people. And I, and I read, I read psychology books and I'm like, you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to talk about your friends and your friends of friends. And we, we gather stories. If, if we were in a, if we were, if we weren't in a information technology thing, if we were around the villages, we would talk about the village we just went to and how we talked to Joe at the village and Joe's out of his mind. Cause Joe doesn't cook his deer all the way. He just goes right. at it raw. And, and but it, and then everyone's like, really, Joe does that? But it's it's like a need in us to to do that and and kind of uh and, and and have that discourse. And I think what's happened is now that discourse is you know it's it's celebrity and it's politicians where we're talking about that, but we're kind of getting the vibe of our friends. You know, it's like, oh my god, can you believe what's happening with Britney Spears? And then you talk about Britney Spears because it's a collective person that you both know, and I and. In the end, I think we lose the collective um, thing of like, hey, we got to talk about Pete Simonelli, you know? What about that band, The Enablers, who I love? <laughs> you know, it's just, and I know, and you de- and you, de- you added him to your uh, acknowledgements, but that's something where it's like, how's Pete doing? Oh, he's doing all right, you know? He's, he had a rough time and blank, blank, blank. And then it's just like, really? Why did he have a rough time? And all I want to know is about that. And I think that's probably uh, a little healthier. And the next time I see Pete, I go, Hey, dude, Mike was telling me about, you know, blank, blank, blank. And like, that guy, Mike, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it all, it's, it's this just circle of, um, I guess, constant need we have as creatures to smell each other's butts. And then I, oh. and then I, if I, if I didn't know how to speak, I'd smell your butt and go, oh yeah, there, Pete was there and how's June? And you'd smell mine and be like, oh, you don't need to know, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They just reissued the. Uh, they just reissued what, or they're just about to reissue one of those enablers early, and maybe maybe their first record. Um, speaking of Pete Simonelli, I, I, I I'm good. I am gonna pre-order it because I had it in San Francisco, but I lost a lot of my records in San Francisco, and I, I need that back on vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. So wait, uh, you were now. With through the windshield that you you uh, published that was that you you had a publishing um, uh, project you put together with your father was that right if I remember right it wasn't with him but I published two of his novels in a, oh, okay. in one in one book I, I you know I wrote through the windshield in the eighties finished it around nineteen ninety and couldn't find anybody to publish it and. Uh, so then I decided to do it myself in around 19, I, it came out in 1998. It wasn't as easy to do then. Um, 
which is a good thing because I think good writing gets through when it's not easy to do. Now it's just like you put it out your when someone says, Oh, I put it out myself. Um, I go, ah, yeah, now <laughs> it's a little I, too easy. I know what you did. You hit enter on something, you went through this process and no one edits anything. And it, right. yeah, it's yeah, it, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I I I, uh, I published it as Sparkle Street Books. I needed a name because you know I needed uh, I needed for the book to be distributed. Um, and uh, even then they were not distributors were not interested in self-published books. So I came up with this name for this uh, published publishing company. And then since I had it, like when I applied for an ISBN number, they give you a dozen of them or something. Or yeah, yeah. I, I still have like seven of them for Me what too. I worked on. <laughs> yeah, for what I worked on Cherry Bleeds, I still have seven ISBN numbers I can use. I'm like, should I use those for some reason? <laughs> yeah, I still have them too on like a computer printout, like the old kind of computer paper that's, uh, you know, the green and white stripes with right. perforations on the side. Yeah, dot, the dot matrix. Dot matrix paper, right. Anyway, so since I had the these ISBN numbers and since my father had these two very beautiful novels uh, that, that he wasn't able to find a publisher for, I published those. And then I published a book by Danny Leone, who's a was it San Francisco. I don't know if you remember Danny. Uh, she used to write for the Bay Guardian, wrote the Bay... Uh, cheap beats column for the for the guardian oh okay cool and uh and so i published a book of her short stories but uh and and then a cut later a couple of books of my own this creamsicle blue that i was talking about and a a collection of short prose called radiant fog um then when i got to this point with jacket weather i just sort of felt like I've done that already, you know, I've at some point you want someone else to publish your own, your work. Right. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I think soft skull is a really good place. <clears throat> I'm, I'm a, I've been a fan of soft skull since uh, Sander Hicks was running soft skull. And I, I, you know, I oh, used to a long time back. <clears throat> yeah. And I, you know, I'd go to the, they would have the, um, Oh, who, the, who's the indie distributor is P P uh, I'm like, PGW uh, <laughs> Publishers Group West. That's it. Right. They they would have some weird book fair thing in like Berkeley. You can go through their stacks, and they had all the publishers. And I'd go straight to Soft Skull, and I would pick out, you know, oh, uh, Lee Ronaldo, and right, right. Uh, it's uh, and it was uh, and then all it's it all of a sudden it just kind of kept growing and growing and becoming a thing. But the 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 and list of authors. Yeah, and the list of authors on there just always intrigued me. Are they back? They're back in New York now, though, aren't they? Yes, um, and they're part of. They're very small, and they're part of a of a company called Catapult. Right. Um, yeah, they they moved back. I don't know when they moved back. It's been a couple of years, I think. And it and it makes sense because I've always thought of Soskal as New York. And when it when it came to uh, California, they, that's when I was published by them in California. Hey, as so that you know, must have been a gas for you, right, to be published oh, by by this press that you loved. Yeah, no, there was um, the, the, when they uh, when they made the offer letter, that was an immediate yes. Um, that was I, I was like, 
holy crap, are you kidding? No, we're stopping here. There's no more <laughs> submissions to anyone else. And yeah. it's just like, it's like, uh, you know, we, 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 some people would say, oh, we probably could do better than this. And I'm like, it's soft skull. No, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. There's a beauty in that. I, I'm very happy that, that, that they, that it was, that they're the ones who did it. I, I, um, not only because Yuka is such a sympathetic editor, but everybody I've dealt with there, the press people are very, the publicity team is very motivated and, and very sensitive and very interested and excited. And, you know, of course it isn't always that way. And this, so I, I feel like I'm in really good hands and that if this book isn't, you know, if, if something goes wrong with this book, or if it's, if it, uh, if nothing happens for this book, it's not going to be their fault. And yeah, that's, and that's the beauty of it, because if something goes wrong, it's absolutely our fault as authors, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where it's, just, it's just like, and then when it goes right, it's absolutely our, it's absolutely our genius as authors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did now uh, you grew, but you grew up in Cleveland, and then you were in New York for a while. I grew up in Cleveland. I moved to New York in 1987 um, to Brooklyn, and I was and, there. And is that when you originally met June? Yes, when I first yeah. moved to New York, it was. I moved there because my friend Tony Mamone from Cleveland, who's a bass player in a band called Paraubu, was mm. they were from Cleveland. And Tony moved up to New York and got me a job on a painting crew. And uh, Paraubu had been broken up for a little while and then they got back together. And the, the woman who did their press was a woman named Jane Friedman. And June was working for Jane. So through Tony back then in like 1987 or 88, I met June and we were friends back then. And uh, I was married at the time. And I left, I split up with my wife in about 1992 and left New York, went back to Cleveland for a year and then wound up in San Francisco. And I was always curious about what, happened in June. I would, you know, I thought about her once in a while. And at that point, we didn't know anybody in common. We knew one person in common, a woman named Nile. And every once in a while, I would hear from Nile. And I would always ask her what she knew about June. She never had any information. And uh, then I moved back to New York in 2005, after something like 12 years in San Francisco. So I was there for a long time in the mission. And uh, I moved back. And I ran into Nile one day on the street and she said, guess who I just talked to? I just talked to June. So Nile set up a dinner for the three of us. And that's where this whole start story starts. That's where the book starts. Yeah. And here so we are. 2009. <laughs> yeah. And that was 2009. Are. Yeah. The, yeah. um, I, they, they're, they're just, and I, I they're not to gush too much, but just the romance, I, the, I find, just just novels romantic and then the love story romantic and when you can put the two together in such a way 
it's just it's it's just oozing romance. You're a romantic fella, Mike. I am. It's funny. It's funny that you say that. I mean, it's true. I am. But this morning I was listening to listening. To, I put together a playlist for this for Spotify. And um, so there's a website called Large Hearted Boy. Which oh, I love for. that. Did you do your playlist for him yet? So I'm in the midst of it. Cool. Right? I'm, oh, I'm in the so midst cool. of doing this. And yeah. uh, so I was working on it this morning and, and the last song on this playlist is a Brian Ferry song. It's for, it's a song from a Brian Ferry solo record called in your mind came out in the mid seventies. Um, and I was listening to that this morning and trying to, trying to write about why it was appropriate for this book. And and I realized I've had this realization before about the same song, in fact, because I sort of visualized this song as as playing over the closing credits. If somebody were, somebody were to film this this book, I would have this song playing over the closing credits. Anyway, it occurred to me this morning that just. You know, just as there's a. Uh, an innocence. There's, in, there's the innocence of, of the inexperienced, right? And then there's an innocence that, that's on the other side of experience. And I felt like, I feel like that Brian Ferry song, I, he is a romantic, but it's the romance of, a, it's, a, it's a romance, it's a romanticism that comes on the other side of realism, you know? Yeah. And I feel like the same is true of this book. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's a love story. So lo love already transcends the, um, the everyday, right? Um, but but it's, it's a love not, story. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. It's a, that's, that's all, that's all I was going to say. It's not the, it's not the romanticism of a, of a 20 year old. It's the romanticism of a, you know, of someone who's been around a little bit. And there, and yeah, it's, it's interesting how important love is after divorce, after the, um, after, after life gives you some, gives you some good ups and some good downs. And then, because, because it, you know, I look back at my 20 year old self who, you know, was just like, that you know, even when you're falling in love, you're fall, you're falling in love in such a different way, where it's a completely different decision, decades later, because um, because at that time, I at that time we're programmed to like just you know we we got to go procreate, you know, essentially it's just like we got to, and yeah. yeah, and it's just like we got to get this thing, we got to get this thing now. Oh my god, I'm 22, I don't have anyone yet. I'm never going to find the one, you know, that weird right. stuff that goes through your head at that age. Yeah. And then, and then there's a real, and then there's a relaxing out of that, um, out of that, uh, the lunacy in our minds of trying to find the one. And, and when you relax out of it and then you're just like, Oh, cool. Okay. I've, I've kind of been through that. And then the, another, the one comes in, it's, it's, um, it's it's more it's it has more i think it has more um 
depth. Yes, thank you. Yeah, the, the depth and importance is a little more there, as well as like kind of the non-importance of, you know, hey, we, we've been through this. Here we are. And this is actually so much better than if we would have met in our 20s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, in fact. Yeah. Um, you know, you sort of take things for granted when you're when you're too young and you're selfish in a way when you're young in a way that you, you know, are maybe less so when you get older. And so, you know, at a certain age, you're just you, part of why you don't want to get involved with anybody anymore is that you don't want to hurt anybody anymore. You don't want to cause any more damage. You don't want to, you're, you know like your whole past is nothing but wreckage, you know, who, who wants it? You just want, which is part of the appeal of staying single. And, uh, and maybe part of why you treat it better when it, when it comes around again. If yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the, if it does, cause when it does, then it's like, Oh, wow. Okay. Here's this again wait, I got to step up. What? Right. Right. <laughs> but it's still like a, a whole different life overnight. I mean, I remember that vividly, that sensation of waking up in the morning, kind of still in your old life and then realizing, Oh no, I'm in this whole new life. Now I have, you know, you know yeah. what I mean? A feeling where you, you sort of, I don't know, your usual, my usual state would have been to wake up every morning and assume the burden of, 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 of my past, you know, um, you know, everything I got wrong or whatever. It's not conscious, but it's, uh, you know, there's a couple of moments where be, when you just wake up and you don't remember quite who you are, you're not anybody, you're just a consciousness that just opened its eyes and then you remember who you are and where you are. And it's kind of the same day as it was yesterday, but then, um, you know, you you meet somebody and that's a whole different sensation in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Can we start a podcast about, uh, romance, uh, middle-aged, <laughs> middle-aged men talking romance. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> we do it once a week. <laughs> We'll have call in. <laughs> we'll, we'll, appeal, we'll appeal to women uh, 18 to 25 because they'll want to know exactly what it takes for, you know, to get their men to be more mature. Right. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. And demographically wise, they're the ones that spend most of the money. So I think we'd get some cash on that too. <laughs> hey, Mike, thanks. To a lot of podcasts. Do I listen to a lot of them? Yeah. Um, not really. I, I'll listen a little bit to, um, I, I listen more to like, uh, Bill Burr and, uh, stuff like that, uh, I guess. Cause he, and I, but I also listen to like meditation podcasts and, oh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, and I like the, I like the things about the brain and you know, what, what's, I, I, I want to know that. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah. How about you? No, not, not, not much. If I have to drive a long way, I, 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 uh, I, I do. I listen to them in the car sometimes, but not really at home. I haven't really found a place for them. 
Yeah. It's so it's so great for the long drives, especially the San Francisco to LA drive, because you know, you, if you just if you're stuck on radio, it's like Christian. Here's here's Jesus for your life for like four hours. But you right. got a podcast. You got different podcasts that are actually you've curated yourself because you there's there's so many great like talk shows yeah, out there. Sure. It's you know instead of listening to um, Make I mean I don't know. Yeah, yeah. After you know than music because music it's a new song every three minutes or whatever and so you know after seven hours of that it's that you're you're exhausted but you could listen to a podcast and uh you don't want to get out of the car when you get there because you want to hear the end of the podcast yeah those are the i know those are the good ones i've had that where i where went back in the days when i used to have to commute over to ucla and i'd be listening to, to a podcast and there'd be 10 minutes left and i'm like i'm stuck in this car because i gotta listen to this and then i'm gonna have to <laughs> i'm gonna have to run to class so I'm not gonna be late, but I'll be the <laughs> I'll be the sweaty guy who actually got to the end of it. Right. <laughs> Mike, thanks thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you, Tony. It's been fun. Mike Decapite on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Jacket Weather, out now on Soft Skull Press. Next week on the show, we have Reba Morel chatting about her new book, Making It. What I Got Away With in Hollywood. She's interviewed everyone from like Harrison Ford to Owen Wilson. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll see you next week. Keep supporting your local libraries and reading books. They are the secret potion that fills our souls. You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP Santa Cruz.